As we come to the scripture now, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, uh, amazed we are again uh, to have uh, your word before us. And so I pray that we would give it the attention that it, this word of God, deserves. Father, just if you would, by your spirit right now, spark within us a sense of being in your presence. A sense that you, as this word is read, are speaking to us. Yes, it is ancient, if you will. Yes, it comes from the pen of one, the apostle Peter. Yes, I'll be reading it, but God, I pray. That we will know that this is holy, this word. It's your word, and so capture us, captivate us by it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to First Peter, the first epistle of Peter, please. In chapter 1, I want to read verses 13 through 25. Verses 13 through 25, please. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, or falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. I was reading a piece this week on preaching. I do that from time to time. I trust you would like me to do that more often than maybe I do. But I was reading a piece and it began like this. It said, you have 30 seconds to grab their attention. So the very first thing that you say has to grab their attention. And I began to think that I usually begin with a review of what we did last time, you see. Now, I was comforted when I realized that one of the most popular television programs ever begins like this. Right? 
It begins that, that show 24. Right? How does it begin? What do you, you know the way. If you listen to the program, you, you know what it says previously on 24. So I thought they start with a review. That's not bad. Now the little ding, ding, ding music probably helps. And you know Jack's about to shoot somebody's kneecap off. But other than that, I mean, you're anticipating. You know, I always think that what captures your attention is when before I read the scripture, I say, this is the word of the Lord, or this is the word of God. I figure if that doesn't capture your attention, I've lost you. Right? So listen always for that. But then I'm comforted by the fact that as I come to verse 13, Peter starts with a review. He says, therefore. He says, before we can go on with what's to come, we have to review what we've said. Because what I'm about to say is related always to what I've already said. You see, we live what some have termed a pilgrimage or this journey or this walk. Everything that we're doing is related to that which we've done and we've, all that we know it, it informs what's going to take place. Our whole life, right, is related to what has happened. It's going to happen today in our lives. It's related in some sense to what has happened in previous days in our lives. And so there's always this review. And, and so Peter says, I have to tell you. Now this review that Peter gives to us with his word, therefore, is of great importance. Because he says, what I'm about to say is based on what I've said. What he said to us is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus, which is a, a buzzword, really, an expression that says, for the work of Christ, all that he's done. The resurrection, in that sense, confirms the truth of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished and what he will accomplish. The resurrection is the linchpin to all of that. And so when he references the resurrection of Jesus, he's saying that what I've said and what I'm going to say is all based on the work of Christ. You might notice from what we did last Sunday in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so you see, what he said to us in those verses is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. What he says to us in the verses that follow from verse 13, similarly, are based on, grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 21, who through him are believers in God, that's speaking of us, we're, through Jesus we're believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So what he has said is grounded in the resurrection, the work of Christ. What he's going to say to us is grounded in the work of Christ as well. So they're related in that way, but they're also related in this way. What we did last Sunday, verses 1 through 12, lay out for us who we are because of what Christ has done. Verses 13 and following, what we read this morning, lay out what we're now to do because of who we are. You get it? Now, it's important always to, to understand the Christian faith like that. Christ has done, therefore we do. If we get that backwards, we do first so that we can become, then we've got it all wrong, you see. We become legalists, we could say. 
We say we must do this so that God will accept us. No, no. Christ has done this so that we can be reconciled to God. That was his work. We did nothing in that. He did it, you see. And some who like grammar say the indicative in Christianity and the gospel always comes before the imperative. Now, you know, verbs like people have moods, right? Now, children, kids, when they come home from school are at best in an indicative mood. They'll tell their mom or their dad what they did. This is true. I'll give you the facts of my day. Now, moms, those of you who think I never mentioned moms on Mother's Day. Now, moms are often in an imperative mood. They say things like, put away your backpack, hang up your coat, you know, do your homework. So you see the difference. One states facts. This is true. The other is a is command. And so before we get to the commands of anything, we, we must realize the fact. And the fact is that the Christ has come. And in his death we died. In his resurrection we rose to newness of life. Thus in his death our sins are forgiven, reconciled to God in his resurrection. All of his work is confirmed. He paid for our sins. We know that the Father has accepted his sacrifice. And so what Peter lays out in these first 12 verses is, are the facts, the truth. This is who we are because of what Christ has done. He starts out in the opening verses by saying we've been chosen by God. That is, we're elect. That it's God's work. And this was according to what he knew and what he ordained and what he planned. And the work of the Holy Spirit. All that we might ultimately be obedient to Jesus. To trust in him and live. And then he says, of course, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has caused us. You see, this is his work. He's caused us to be born again. That metaphor of being born again. We know we don't cause our own birth. That comes from someone else. So we've been born again into a living hope. In one sense, we could say that Jesus is our living hope. As long as he lives, we have hope. Since he lives, we have hope. And he lives, therefore it means his sacrifice was accepted. Therefore it means our sins are forgiven. Uh, therefore it means we're reconciled to God. All of that, because he lives. That's our hope, you see, in him, not in ourselves. But also this hope is alive within us because he lives within us. So we have this hope even if we could say bubbling up. People don't usually describe me as bubbling, but bubbling up in us, you see. And so there's this sense of, of hope within us, this expectation of good that's to come. And he says, the good that's to come that we expect is this inheritance that's secure for us, that nothing can take it away. It's in heaven, so it's protected, if you will, by God. And even our faith on earth is guarded by God. And even if suffering comes, that will not destroy our faith. Those who belong to, to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who have this hope, when difficulties come, when suffering comes, this suffering be used in such a way as to refine our faith, as to perfect our faith, as to prove our faith genuine, you see. So suffering won't take away our faith. Therefore, this inheritance is really guarded in heaven by God and even on earth by God through protecting our faith. And he says, therefore, as you live... You will gain increased assurance that you're actually obtaining this salvation. And the day will come, you see, when you will be glorified, when you'll see the glory of it, when you receive it. So all that's true of us, you see. That's now who we are. So then the question is, how is it that we're to live given that this is true of us? 
Now, bear in mind, the commands that the Lord gives to us are not, at least, not to be burdensome to us. They're not to be burdensome to us. In fact, the Apostle John in his first letter puts it like this in chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. They're not meant to be burdensome. Now, commands are burdensome when they go against our grain, if you will. When we feel them, when we say, that's not right. I don't want to do that. that. That that wouldn't bring any satisfaction or fulfillment to do that. But you see, what the scripture tells us is that when we've been born again to this living hope, we've really been born again. That something has really changed in us. We are, as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, new creatures, new creations. There's something new about us. And that new about us is this new disposition to God. And so then when he commands us not to be burdensome, but these commands are actually to fit us. See, see, these commands are to fit who we now are in Jesus. They're not to be burdensome. They're not to be against the grain. But our grain has been reversed, you see. And so they're to fit nicely. So when we hear these commands, they're not meant at all to be burdensome. And we'll, we'll see, I trust, how they're unburdened as Peter lays it out for us. And so he says, therefore, given that, given who you are, given who you are because of what Christ has done. Now he says, all of this, the commands I'm about to give are set in this context. He says, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded. Now, what he's saying in that is that you need to focus your attention. You're ready to focus your attention on that which is true about you because of what Christ has done. You need to focus your attention. That You need to really be grounded in what Christ has done. Prepare your minds for actions. Literally, it means gird up the loins of your mind. Now, it's not a very pleasant image, I don't think. But, but that's the, the literal nation. I mean, if, you, if you knew the culture, and you do, uh, that often men would wear long flowing robes. And so to really get around quickly... You'd have to sort of wrap up in your belt in some way this rope so you could be free to, to really travel well. He says, if you really want to be able to get on with this, then, then your mind has to be prepared. You have to gird up the loins of your mind and be, and be ready, really. Be ready to go. You need to be sober-minded. Now, when we hear the word sober, we contrast that with being unsober, being drunk. And we know what drunkenness brings. It brings a lack of awareness. It brings a lack of alertness. It brings a a compromised ability to understand reality and understand the circumstance and situation and and be able to make good decisions. And we know that's what happens. That's what drunkenness brings. So I want you to be the opposite of that. I want you to be spiritually alert. 
I want you to be to be able to look at circumstances of life and look at situations and be able to read them rightly, know what's true, what's false, what to value, what not to value, so that you can live in such a way that's consistent with who you are. And of course we know the way that we do that is Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, not the removal of our minds, but the renewing of our minds. Renewing according to God's thoughts. Yeah. Theologian of a previous generation put it like this. We need to learn how to think God's thoughts after him. We need to learn to think God's thoughts after him. We need to learn to think like God, if you will, to the best a human being can. So we understand things from his perspective, thus we understand things rightly. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Again, he says, we need to learn to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. We need to run it by Jesus in such a way that he says, is this right? Is this the way to think about this? Is this really true? Is this not true? Ephesians chapter 6. As this armor of God is being put on. Some of you know that passage well. But it's all about truth. It's about the the, the, the belt of truth, understanding the truth. It's of the breastplate of righteousness. Knowing that your righteousness comes, first and foremost, from Jesus. We sang that this morning. Uh, my only hope, my righteousness, my, my defense, I suppose that's the word. My defense, my righteousness. And that God is all of that. Uh, Tyler helped us with that in his last little refrain. He says, God are, right? And so we, we, we need to know that the breastplate of righteousness, have your minds really focused upon that, you're really secure in that. The helmet of salvation, you're thinking, you understand right about truth. You're, 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 you're walking this, these, these shoes that are shod with the gospel, the gospel of peace, you see. Uh, the, sh- the shield that's your faith. Your faith is in Jesus. You know the truth of Jesus. Thus, you have a shield that can put out any temptation, any trials, any, any fiery darts from the enemy. Uh, and, and then, of course, you take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you take it up praying. All of that, you see, that's how your mind is prepared. That's how you become sober spiritually, if you will, because it's through that lens that you really see life. You really understand what's going on. So he says, with that kind of focus, three things. I don't know if I'll get to all of them. Three things. I told Karen this morning as she sat down, pray for me. I've got three points of which I might only get through one and a half. And I've got three endings depending on where I go. So let's just work this out together. All right. But it's summer. There's no Sunday school. And the next service doesn't start until 1045. But, uh, but here we go, you see. Now, he says, first of all, set your hope fully on the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the first big command, if you will. Set your hope fully, completely, solidly. Set your hope, this expectation of good to come. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus is revealed. That is, he appears at his second coming. Now, he says you've been born again into this living hope. You've got it. It's true of you. This inheritance is secure. Your faith is being guarded. Now, you need to engage in this. You need to engage in this. 
You need to renew your mind with this all the time. When you read the newspaper, you need to say, where's my hope? Right? When difficult news comes, you need to, where's my hope? Right? When you reflect back upon disappointment, where's my hope? When you realize the uncertainty of the future, you ask yourself, where's my hope? You see, this is the constant focusing, preparing your mind, sobering you up. Where's my hope? You see? We don't do that. Then it gets away from us. That's why we have Sundays. So we can, once in seven, uh, refocus, if you will. One in seven days. We can prepare our minds, sober up, if you will. One day in seven. uh, We can set our hope fully on this grace that is to be revealed at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when we worked our way through First Thessalonians, we talked some about the revelation of Jesus, the appearing of Jesus. There will be a great gathering, you see, of believers who have died and believers who are alive at the time. There will be a great gathering with the Lord and they'll be with the Lord forever. We realize that when he appears for believers, it won't be for his wrath but that we might then receive this great salvation. And so that's our hope, you see, when he returns. We realize that when he returns, the earth will be renewed. That everything in it and on it, including us, will reflect Jesus. And all that is true of him and all that he desired for the earth and for us at creation and all that he is as the perfect human being you see and the earth will be beautiful as it reflects the lord and it will be safe as it reflects the lord and everything will work together and it will yield its fruit to us without hesitation without difficulty without weeds right without bad weather without it'll just it'll yield to us it'll cooperate live in harmony if you will with us as opposed to how it feels against us. You know, the scripture says of the earth, it's groaning even now. Desiring to be set free even if we could personify the earth in that way. Well, it will be free, set free to, to live, to be the earth that it was meant, if you will, to be. And us too, because you see, there'll be no sin. And then that's an unthinkable thing, unimaginable thing to us. We, we really don't know what that even looks like in the context of the world, but to, to realize that that's the truth. And so as, as, as the picture comes to a close at the end of the revelation of John in chapters 21 and 22, we see the picture, if you will, of, of what will be true, that it will be glorious, that the, that the Lord will shine and heaven and earth will come together, if you will, at that point. And there will be no more tears because sin is what causes tears. There will be no more grief because sin is what causes grief. There will be no more poverty or injustice or inhumanity or hatred or slander or gossip or any of that. There won't be need. There won't be want in this place where the glory of God shines and God dwells with his people forever. We realize that and there's a sense in us that resonates with that and says, yes, that's the way it will be. And all will be righteous in the sense be made right at that point. And she says, with that appearing, set your hope on that, on that completely, you see. That's real hope, real sustaining hope. Victor Frankl, uh, who found himself in Nazi Germany to be in concentration camp, wrote a number of books. One, Man's Search for Meaning. One of, one of the fascinations, if I could put it that way, that he had was trying to think back through how is it 
that we made it through? How is it some made it and some didn't through the concentration camps? And just one piece. He noticed that there was a necessity of hope and a necessity to find meaning in life. And, and he said for some who made it, their hope was that everything that they had lost would be restored to them once they got out. Now, he said the problem with that hope was that it was a false hope. And it proved to be a false hope because when they got out, it wasn't restored to them. And they, many of them were devastated for the rest of their lives, never able after the emotional pool of that hope and then to be let down and thus devastated. For us, you see, this isn't a false hope. We know that everything that was lost in the garden when Adam sinned and more will be restored to us. And we know that because Jesus has risen from the dead. Because you see, when he rose, it was confirmation, affirmation that the father had accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. But not only that, he rose to this new life. The first fruit of this new creation. And so he lives for us as the guarantee of all that is to come. And he'll bring it. So it isn't a false hope. So we we grab hold of that, you see. And then secondly, this, Peter says. That we're to live with this hope. Not so that we abandon the life that we now have. Not so that we extricate ourselves from the life that is. We're not to have this hope and say, all I need to do is hold on. All I need to do is hold on and I'll get to the end. And when the end comes, it'll all be great. Now, it's going to be miserable from here on out. But but, that isn't his, his point at all. His point is, if this is your hope, if your hope is that a world will come where there is no sin, then now live holy. Notice how he puts it. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, if your hope is set on this life where sin is gone, if that's really your hope, then Peter says, well, get on with it now. I mean, John puts it very explicitly, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. It's to see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. So Peter calls us obedient children. He says we're children of God. So we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him, beloved. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. In other words, when we see him, we'll be conformed to his image. That's the classic word, isn't it? We're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. Everything will be. But we'll see him and we'll be conformed to his image. So John says this. And everyone who thus hopes in him, that is hopes in Jesus, hopes that when we see him, we'll be like him. That's the same thing Peter's talking about. Set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us. When Jesus is revealed. And everyone who thus hopes in him. Purifies himself. As he as Jesus. Is pure. In other words. Lives holy. That's really what you want. I mean if a little kid came to me. A 10 year old boy came to me. And said Bill. I want to be a baseball player when I grow up. I'd say that's great. But you know what I would expect to find every summer. 
I would expect that kid to be playing baseball. He wasn't playing baseball. I said, you really want to be that? That's your hope in life, to be a baseball player? You're going to put it off till you're 18? No, if you really have that hope, then you want to do that. If somebody comes to me and says, Bill, I want to be a singer, I expect to find them singing all the time. Someone wants to be an artist, I expect them to be sculpting or painting or whatever it is uh, in their art. I, I expect them to be doing that. If that's their hope, their heart's desire, if that's what turns them on, if you will, fuels them, then if what fuels us is to be in a world where there isn't sin and the effects of it, then it would seem to me that we'd want to eradicate sin as much as we possibly can from our own lives and even the life the, even the world in which we live, that, that, that we'd get on with it. And, 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 and the, the Bible word for that is to be holy. God says, be holy for I'm holy. He's the premise for our holiness. We're created in our, our, his image. And he's the pattern for our holiness. Be holy as I'm holy. Now, holiness has a spatial, that is a Missourian for special, uh, has a spatial uh, piece to it. What that means is, it's special, yeah, but, but it's spatial, that is, means set apart. It's different. It's over here when everything else is over there. That's how you notice it in, in the first sort of most generic sense. When we talk about the holiness of God. We're talking about that he's set apart. He's unique. He's different in every way, really, because he's perfect in every way. Now, if we wanted to, we could say, what are the attributes of God? We could list one or many. We could list one by simply saying he's holy. Or we could list many, like he's loving and Merciful and compassionate and wise and powerful and present and all of that. But with those, either we would want to put or at least have implied holy. That is to say his love is holy. It's perfect. Nobody loves like God. Right? His wisdom is holy. No one is wise as God is holy. His, his mercy is holy. Nobody is as merciful as God is merciful. You see, his power is holy. It's pure. It's perfect. It's never used improperly. It's always used with the right amount of force at the right amount of time in just the right way. It's holy. That's this sense of be holy, be set apart. God is set apart. It says, be holy for I am holy. You remember and then when, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, the angels round about him saying, what? Now, they could have said, love, love, love. They could have said, wise, wise, wise. Right? And they could have said, powerful, powerful, powerful. Could have said, awesome dude, awesome dude, awesome dude, I suppose. But no, they said, holy, holy, holy. Everything about you is perfect, set apart in, in, in a way that's unto you. And so when we're called to be holy as God is holy, he means this. He's saying, what I want from you is to be set apart by me for me. Right? Set apart by me for me. So he would say to the nation of Israel, numerous occasions, this very expression that Peter uses, be holy for I'm holy. That is, don't be like all the other nations. 
You're mine. You're my treasured possession. I'm making you to be a holy nation, different than all the others. Set apart. Moses, this is holy ground. This ground is different than every other ground because I'm here. The temple has a holy place and a most holy place, different from every other place. Why? Because I'm here present in this and I have a particular purpose for this. That's perfect. That's holy. That's, that's mine. The priests would be set apart to be holy. All of that. We're to be holy as he's holy. And that is today we're to live in such a way that's conformed to the image of Christ. Now, the good news is that there's two aspects to this holiness. One aspect of this holiness is already done. The other aspect of this holiness is progressing. The holiness that already is done is that We've been given the righteousness of Jesus. So that's already done. We're already holy in that sense, set apart, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in that sense. So the scripture can speak of Christians as those who are sanctified. They've been set apart by God for God. His spirit has come upon us, caused us to believe we belong to him. But then he says, now that's holiness is to be worked in you. It's to be worked in you. So that you live it out, being conformed to the image of Christ. And he puts it rather bluntly. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And I want to say, come on, Peter. Ignorance? You want to use that word, really? He'd say, yes, of course I do. Now, this ignorance has nothing to do with IQ. It has nothing to do with how smart we are, or any of that. But... It's this godless mindset. It's that kind of ignorance. The kind of ignorance that either avoids, ignores, doesn't think about, doesn't want to know about, doesn't pursue any real knowledge of the true and living God. Or we might see it as ignorance that's hostile, that's antagonistic, that wasn't, doesn't really want to know and comes against the true knowledge of God. Now, the Bible says that both types of ignorance are the result of the same thing. And either puts it like this, that we know the truth, but we suppress it. Or we've hardened our hearts against it. It's that kind of ignorance. So Paul would write to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, in chapter 4, this. He says, now this... Verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You see, all of this is futile. If we, if we live according to this ignorance, if we live according to the world, if you will, then it's simply futile, as the preacher said. It's vanity. It gets us nowhere. It's like being on the wrong road, going in the wrong direction, but making really good time. Right? But there's no traffic. This is great. I know. But that's the road that leads to destruction. He says it's futile. You get nowhere, really. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance, this godless mindset that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity and so forth and so on. And you see, he uses Paul there 
you or they, but it's really us before, right? It's really us before this work of God. First opening verses of First Peter. This is what has happened. You were, now you're this. They've become calloused and given up. I've read that. Verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. He's using, obviously, an educational metaphor here from ignorance to learning. That is not what the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so he says, yes, this has happened. This is who you are. Now realize this particular time frame between the time that you've come to faith and the time that you die or Jesus returns. You are to be holy and realize that this is a conscious effort, even perhaps struggle it won't be burdensome in the sense that all of this fits you really but it may take a while for you to be well fit into it and so he says put off you could say strip off right you can feel that strip off that old way and put on the new way the way of Christ. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's godliness. And you see, that's what we're to do. And then finally, Peter says this. All right. <clears throat> you hope, and that is to come, this existence without sin, therefore get on with it now and to be Holy. I had a long quote. I'll just give you a piece of a quote. I, I just used to hear this. John Owen, previous century, old dead guy. Puts it like this. He said, My heart's desire unto God and the chief design of my life are that universal holiness may be promoted in my own heart and in the hearts and ways of others. He grabbed a hold of this passage to be holy. And he says, all right, therefore, what needs to be true of me, this is my desire, desire of my heart, is that the chief divine of my life as I understand it, the universal holiness that is complete holiness, God's holiness, may be promoted in my own life and even through me in the hearts and the ways of others. And then he says, all right, Peter does, given all that, now conduct yourself in fear. Notice, he puts it verse 17 in, and you call on him as a as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourself with a fear, with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, when he talks about fear, this kind of fear, uh, as scripture uses it in the context of the lives of believers, isn't the fear of being afraid per se. But it's the fear of awe. It's the fear of having your breath taken away. It's, it's the fear, as the writer of Proverbs puts it, the fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of wisdom. It's realizing who he is and who you are and realizing, oh, I must submit to him. That's the beginning, you see, of wisdom. That's the whole sense of life. For unbelievers, there is the fear, the real fear. As Jesus put it, don't be afraid of the one who can only kill your body, but be afraid of the one who can send body and soul into hell. Right? That's, that's that fear that an unbeliever really should have in the presence of God. We know that isn't going to be true for us as believers, but, but we realize, though, that as believers, we're to be holy, you see, and, and we call on this one who is our father. Again, when the Bible uses the word father, it doesn't use it of every human being in this sense. It uses those who are children of God, thus those who believe. You know that. And so, so he says, Father, he's saying, this is what is really true of you. He's your father. You're his child. And therefore you call on him. But realize this. He judges impartially. Now, what does that mean? It means he doesn't have two standards. It means he doesn't have a standard for unbelievers and a standard for us. It's sort of like, you know, once you're in the family, you might think, well, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. You know, dad will be fine with this because I, I belong here. He's not going to hold the same standard of me that he does of anybody else. But if you know, if you grew up in most families, you know that your dad holds a higher standard for you than for everybody else. That's just the way love is. So he says he judges impartially. And so realize that when you sin, confession is important. Confession is important. When you sin against him, repentance is, still, repentance is still important in the context of, of life. Yes, he's your father, but he doesn't change his standard for you. So live in that kind of tension, that kind of reverential awe of his holiness. And he gives really two motives here for that. One is just the basic discipline that a father brings. We know that God who loves us will discipline us. So, so live in fear to know that. But also this, verse 18, he says, Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but it was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope is in God. He says, all right, hope in him, be holy, live in fear. Why? Because you live, should live, I should live. In the utter amazement, it should daily take our breath away. In the utter amazement that we've been ransomed. We've been ransomed. And to realize that the ransom price wasn't simply silver and gold. It wasn't simply billions of dollars. It was more valuable than that. We were ransomed. By way of the blood of Jesus, the very Son of God. Now that takes a lot to wrap around. It's way easier for me to put a dollar sign and, oh, that's what it's worth. 
or even see a thing and say, oh, it's worth that. But when I think about the blood of Christ, I don't have a category in my brain really for that. Other than to think about that. And that's what he's saying. And he said, this was no fluke. This was the foreknowledge of God. This was the plan of God. This was the foreordination of God. This has been in the works since before the creation of the world. In other words, your salvation and mine was in the works before the, the, the foundations of the world, before the creation of the world. Do you imagine that? So it wasn't a fluke. We just didn't fall into this. This has been, you and I have been in the plan of God, mysteriously, miraculously, since before the foundations of the world. He says, think upon that. And if that doesn't make you stop and suck air, if that doesn't make you stop and lose your breath, and if that doesn't make you stop and say, who is this one who has loved me so? Should I not yield to him? Should I not follow him? Should I not obey him? I mean, if he's done that, doesn't he have my best interests in mind? You know, that great passage out of Romans 8. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's given us Jesus. Why do you think he'd withhold the, the little stuff? He has our best interest in mind. These commands are that we would flourish. He says, you're exiles finish with this you're exiles he said meaning that they're living in a world that's alien he says it's different i know but just like israel was in babylon he says what i want you you know you could you could withdraw from it isolate yourself or you could just uh, flow into it and join with it he says no i don't want you to do that He said to Israel, I want you to go there and I want you to live among them and follow me. And he says the same to us. How do you do that? We put our hope on that which is to come. And then by the grace of God, we desire to be and seek holiness. And we live in this constant awareness, this constant fear of the holiness And the wonder and the grace of God who ransomed us and saved us. Hmm. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us. (laughs) Pray for me that I'd get it. That I really would see it. That I really would understand it. That I really would walk in it. That I really would know it. And I pray that for everyone here as well. That I would be grounded so in the facts and the glory of the resurrection of Jesus. And I would be convinced that I really am who you say I am. So that then I could really get on with what you say I'm to be doing. So Father, I pray for me, for us, that we would in fact prepare our minds for action, that we would be sober-minded as a result of setting our hope fully on this grace that will be brought to us when Jesus is revealed. That we would be holy as you, God, are holy. And that we would conduct ourselves in this reverent fear.
Be with us, I pray. Pray for those who have special needs on this day who are suffering in various ways and difficulties coming their way. I pray that they would constantly be saying, but I hope in Christ, but I hope in Christ, but I hope in Christ. I'm to be holy. It's amazing. I've been ransomed. Father, every difficulty that comes our way, I pray, whether it be disease, whether it be loneliness, whether it be discouragement, whether it be the sin that so easily besets us, whether it be financial need, whether it be relational issues, I pray, God, whether it be sadness of those we love who aren't believers, I pray, God, that you would graciously enable us to live in this hope and to follow after you. This, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.